the Gospel of Mark, as we continue to read the final chapter, chapter 16. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him, the Lord who is crucified, the Lord who died. In this place of the skull called Golgotha, the Lord was going to be buried and resurrected, risen from the dead shortly. Joseph of Arimathea took the body, as we read, and laid the body in his tomb. And the women thought somehow they have to come and anoint his body and they bought spices to that effect they took a risk they couldn't assume anything really because although they observed where he was laid they carefully watched where the body was going to be taken Joseph of Arimathea went into Pilate. The body was there on the cross and taken down. They were watching. They did not move their gaze away from the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had such an affection and reverence for him. And he was number one in their lives. So they couldn't afford to be distracted with anything else even though they had been there for hours. What was all important was their Lord. And even if he had died, the body of the Lord. They observed where that body was laid in the tomb. And the Next morning, very early in the morning, it's written, they came with the spices. It was a risk because the Romans were in charge. It was not a normal death. And knowing his fame and the trouble that was caused by his righteous stand. They took a risk in going to look for the body in the tomb so that they can anoint the body. They identified themselves with the Lord. They didn't desert him, they didn't run away. They stood, we could guess, as close as women could 
get to him as possible in their day and in that hour. They were loyal to the very end and it didn't stop. They had to give the Lord a decent burial. At least have the part they need to play even though they're not in charge. Similar to Mary coming in to Simon's house and anointing the body of the Lord anticipating the burial. She took a risk. We read that recently. And now a greater risk. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week they weren't thinking about sleep. Peter, James and John their eyes were heavy with sleep in the garden. And it's written that they began to be very sorrowful. The emotional weight of the tragic events that were to follow and seeing their Lord in distress, the Master in distress and not being able to comprehend it along with physical tiredness no doubt but the emotional weight of the ordeal compounded the effect of drowsiness and their eyes were heavy with sleep and the Lord came asking them repeatedly couldn't you watch with me for one an hour for one hour Watch and pray, otherwise you'll fall into a trap, temptation. You have to watch and pray to be alert. They were falling asleep in front of the Lord, as it were. Now the Lord is gone for all effective purposes as far as human condition goes. But these women would not let sleep get in the way. It's a very different type of life that they lived, which is in great contrast to the lives that we may live, where we may say the sorrow of it all just overtook me and I couldn't get up and go with the other women with the spices early in the morning. But they were spiritually agile, not just physically, as we spoke about this recently, that the spirit man within them had domination over their bodies so that the bodies followed what the spirit man inside really desired. We can be sure, although it's not written here, that these women knew how to watch and pray. Even if they've seen their Lord, the Rabbi, the Master, the Son of God crucified, they can't comprehend it all, but we can be sure they're praying to God still.
And they were able to get up early after watching this horrific crucifixion scene, and that too, against the one that they loved the most, the holy, innocent, blameless, harmless Son of God, with tremendous blood loss and wounds all over his body from the flogging as well as the driving of the nails, the crown of thorns that was plaited there before and the slaps and the beatings and the punches and being dragged through the night and kept in prison. In every way he was being tortured and everyone deserted him, all his disciples. They saw all the agony and the agony of the Lord himself as you see in John's gospel looking down at his earthly mother the earthly vessel I should say his mother Mary and the observance of all the pain that's involved and seeing him suffer and adding to his own suffering by watching this human vessel Mary in horror and grief, knowing that she's hurting. Because he was such a loving person, to the very end he cared about other people. Even in his worst agony, Jesus, 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 lover of our souls. The Spirit of God works in a human being who is used to getting pampered and makes time for oneself to make sure we're adjusted and comfortable. And all of the crankiness is extracted from our psyche by the work of the Holy Spirit because we know there's a mission. And what caused these women to get up early after an emotional ordeal, they could have wiped them out physically as well, should have. They were alert. Nobody told them that they had to be there. The Lord didn't say, now when I get crucified, I want you, you and you, be there by the tomb early next morning. I know there's a risk involved. I know you're going to be so full of sorrow. You're going to have a headache. Your eyes are going to hurt from crying so much. And It's not only Mary, but all of you also, dear women, my daughters, you would have felt a sword pierce your own heart too, watching me die. But just be there. Just be there early morning with your spices. There's no such command. The apostles didn't tell the women, now, you go there, they won't harm you, the soldiers, if they catch you. They're more likely to harm us. No one gave them any directive to go there. What drove them to get up early and have control over their bodies the spirits exerting that force to control the body and take them to where they needed to be 
what motivated and drove them was love. Such love for the Savior. Think about a good mother. How the mother, even if she gets no sleep, would make sure that the child is safe. The priority is not, well, I did what I had to do and I told him to listen. He didn't listen. Well, if you fall, you get hurt, you die, it's on you. Right now, mommy's been up for two days and I have to get at least three hours sleep. No good mother reasons that way. But if the child is in danger, the mother continues to push until the child is in safety. Although people may do it, quote-unquote, instinctively, there are many mothers who do it out of genuine love. Although there may be parents who do it out of fear that if something happens to the child, they'll come catch me. They'll blame me. There are people who have motivations like that more than love. It's fear for self-preservation and self-protection and saving face. The Spirit of God diagnoses the human heart so we can know exactly who we are before God. And then we can repent, make sure we change. It goes for men also, any human being. These women were motivated by love. They refused to sleep, even though they should have been knocked out from the emotional toll and the physical toll that came upon them, witnessing the crucifixion scene concerning their Lord and Savior. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb and the sun had risen. They didn't say, well, I'm sure that he'll, he'll be there. I mean, we saw him late in the tomb. He's not going anywhere. He's dead. We'll get up at 9, 10 o'clock, 11, maybe in the evening we'll go. Maybe we'll go next Tuesday. They could have. No one forbade them. Nobody said, well, you can't. But they had an internal voice called love. They said, I have to be there. I can't not be there. I don't even know if they slept. And that too, going for a dead body, obviously, they also, along with the men, did not expect him to rise um, because they're caught up in everything. The events that transpired. And so, we see that Mary was startled when she knew it was the rabbi, it was the Lord Jesus. She thought he was the gardener. And yet, even though they didn't expect him to rise, or that was not at the forefront of their minds, even though the Lord kept telling them, this is what's going to happen and I will rise from the dead, they went for this body of a Savior that for all practical purposes they lost. They loved him so much, they honored him. 
They made sure they did what they had to do to be there. And they said among themselves, they were not going there weak, dragging their feet, and then thinking to themselves, well, we made it. It was very difficult to get up, and we're here. So we'll just stand around for a few minutes, and if nobody brings the body out, that's that. We'll just go, turn around, and we're not talking to anyone. We're hoping that the tomb will be accessible. And notice they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? There's a barrier between me and my Savior. I've got to know how to get rid of that barrier. Hallelujah. I've got to get to Jesus. He's my everything. Nothing's going to stop me. They took a tremendous risk. They overcame a tremendous emotional toll and physical ordeal. They didn't stop. They didn't say, well, I've, I made it. First of all, I need an award for waking up. Second, you've got to give me an award for dragging my feet this distance. And third, to risk my life. And fourth, I didn't come empty-handed. I brought the spices. All my intentions are good, but the boat left, the train left, so that's about it. I go back home. There were women of, obviously, not just love, but faith. These things burned in their hearts. It was a flaming, holy love for their Savior and a living, fiery faith. These women were sharp spiritually, even if they missed in the cloud of everything that was happening, the resurrection event that was supposed to happen. If they missed anticipating that, at this point. They were shocked in the sense that they had a clear objective. We're taking spices. We've got to put it on the Lord, anoint Him on His body. Sometimes we can begin and then stop before the goal is met. And find ourselves congratulating ourselves or other people, gather people around us to say, well, you did more than most. So, take it easy. You go reward yourself now. They're not sloppy like that. Like so many today. They were selfless. And they went to do something. And that was their interest. I have to get this done because this is why I came. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? And when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. They didn't let anything stop them. Even at this point, as excited as they could have been to see that stone had already been rolled away. They could have said, well, we're not entering. You go in first. I'm not going in. Maybe there's a soldier over there hiding. They continued on the mission. 
oh God is on my side so I can continue until the goal is met. May the Lord help us to have that endurance and a mindset to get what God wants to give us, to do what he told us to do, all the way, not halfway, all the way. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. One of the defenses as to the authenticity of Scripture being divinely inspired and not some story somebody wrote up, one of the important things to notice that it has detail that otherwise a person may not write. If they wanted to make up a story, they could have said, well, the women came running and had the drama. One was panting, the other one was falling and tripping over herself, and they finally managed to huddle together, and they got the spices together, and lo and behold, they saw the stone rolled away, and a bright shining figure over there, and they were alarmed. But it says not only a young man clothed in a long white robe, but sitting on the right side. There's a certain position that the Lord has laid, obviously. And when we read the other Gospels, we see that the napkin and the linen that they used to wrap the body, it was neatly folded. It was an instant vanishing, not a disruption and stumbling, supernatural resurrection. The body itself was gone. It was not just the soul, obviously, that departed, but the body disappeared. The Lord could not be held by death, King David said. He cannot be held by corruption. His body is not going to decay. No. This is the Lord's body from where virtue came. He gave himself to be crucified. And that's why the Lord said, no one takes my life from me. I remember a young man, a rather large young man, from the project area. When as a teenager I was working in a certain store, part-time, while going to school. And this young man obviously was from the rough side of town and he was a security guard for that store and he happened to walk past some stores to get lunch or something and there were these local thugs if you will troublemakers who wanted him off of the payphone when he was on a call. And they began to harass him to get off of the payphone. They had an exchange of words, and I remember this young man telling the group of boys, who's going to stop me? It was a challenge. 
And people say words to make sure they get the point across that I'm not afraid of you, or at least I want to pretend so that you think that I'm not afraid of you. And maybe they have T-shirts and hats saying no fear and you can't touch me and you can't do this and that and all kinds of sayings to flaunt their invincibility. But this young man was sitting here. It appeared to be a young man. This long white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. The person who has fear because of human nature at an event like this and a visitation from an a holy messenger. When you have a detail like that in the other gospel details about the linen and the body disappearing, only the Lord could say, no one can stop me. Only those who have trust in him. These women were alarmed, but still they didn't run away. As human beings, we have that fear factor that can come at any time due to circumstances. As King David said, what time I'm afraid, I will trust in the Lord. We push through, and we have to push through because We want to depend upon the Lord and complete the mission He's given us. This is a mission that these women had. There's nothing stating that was given to them, but they were driven by their love and faith. Even when they saw this, they didn't run away. And they heard these words, But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. He's telling them, look, this is where they laid him and he's not there. He's invincible. Death couldn't hold him. No one can stop the Lord. It seemed like everything was stopped. His ministry was stopped. His life was snuffed out. Everything came to an abrupt, very sad halt. But it was momentary. In the scheme of eternity, and in the scheme of his lifespan on earth, The hours that he lay in the grave, the hours that he endured the crucifixion, combined still was momentary. 
because they pushed through, not having been told to do this, but they were led and they yielded. Surely, what they would have understood, and as we have been thinking and saying, the love that made them run after Jesus, no matter what, take the risk, and the fear of God or the faith that they had to overcome human fear, they fear the Lord. They had some kind of trust, some faith that God will protect us because after all, we're going to see the body of His Son. They may not have thought these things out, but certainly they had that awareness and reliance upon God and that made them keep going. But as we see the events unfold, that the angel was sent to speak to them. Surely they were led by the Spirit of God. When we are led by the Spirit of God, the love of God and faith in God will cause us to follow where the Spirit leads. We know from Scripture that no matter what the Lord prophesies or predicts, if we don't do our part, we can miss all the blessing. They have no idea that they're going to meet an angel. How many times we may think, well, I don't know if I'll show up to that Bible study. I don't know if I'll show up to this. I think we got three out of five this month or two out of three this week and we can afford to skip this and that. We'll make up for it. But perhaps it's that meeting, that particular meeting where God is going to do something. And because we've assumed and become lazy or distracted, we missed his visitation. This is a lesson for life for every one of us. That whatever God wants us to do, never assume that it's going to be a certain way that it won't be as valuable as I think it will be or it should be or it was before. Where God is working, where He's speaking, there are things that He does in our hearts and things that He wants to do in our minds and in our bodies and in our service to Him that only he can do, but he wants to see who's going to come without having the rewards dangle in front of them. Similar to when the Lord says, suddenly he'll come, like a thief in the night. Why? Because if everything should be laid out, exactly what day and hour and second he's going to come, and people's following and their appearance and waiting for him will not will not be genuine for most people. So it's important for us to see this encounter they had with an angel from heaven talking to them and giving them direction, explaining as much as they needed to hear at that point. Who would have ever thought that they would meet an angel inside the tomb of the Lord whose body was dead? They were coming to a lifeless body to show their love. 
and their continued faith, even though it felt shy of believing in the resurrection at this point, consciously. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. We know that Peter is isolated here in that statement. Amidst the ten others that the angel was referring to, Judas already out of the picture. No longer an apostle, he lost his apostleship. But among the eleven remaining, Peter is separated from the ten. The man that brought shame or did something so shameful that he denied the Lord and that too, vehemently, forcibly cursing and swearing that I don't know Jesus. How horrible and he wept bitterly. The rooster crowed again and the Lord looked on him. The good news for the man who would have felt so terrible. Thoughts perhaps flooding will will ever be restored. I know what the Lord said. Satan will desire to sift me like wheat, but he prayed for me, Lord, that my faith won't fail. But I did such a big blunder. Oh, God. Oh, God. How could I have ever done this? Have you ever felt that way? How many of us have said that, Lord, why did I even do this? And How could I have done this? What's wrong with me? It's a good place to start when we are wrong. But we have to continue. Not stay there pitying ourselves. We have to say, Lord, what do I do? Peter would have definitely thought about that also. And the Lord sends his messenger to reassure him. I'm giving you the news too. I'm risen. Hope for Peter also. And hope for us. The devil will come to condemn. He'll bring a lot of things. Sometimes he'll bombard a believer with a continuous barrage of memories of disobedience before the Lord. When the believer is actually not doing those things anymore and has nothing to do with that, they try to bring what had happened in the past to make us frozen in fear and distress, hopelessness. The Lord says, I've risen from the dead. I paid the price for you. Let's get back on track. It's a message of forgiveness. Otherwise, why would he say, tell Peter to? He's going to meet you, Peter, with the other disciples. That he's going before you into Galilee. Now, from the south Jerusalem, the Lord's already going to meet them up there in Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. The women having exclusive privileges here to hear a heavenly messenger 
to see that the body after all of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus himself is invincible. It seemed like everything was over, but hope has come. The body's not there. Nobody could have taken that body. The angel's announcing that he's alive. He's risen from the dead. The drama unfolds into something more and more glorious. They are in shock, but they're listening to what the angel tells them to do, and they follow through. At no point do you see these women disobeying. No wonder they were given this privilege. At some point in their lives, they decided, I'm going to follow Jesus, no turning back. Whatever he says to do, I will do. It's not just an emotional attachment. I'm going to follow him like a fan club. I'm going to do what he says. He's not just a famous person. We have access to He's the Lord. We have to obey him. And they simply continue doing what they used to do. Once the transformation happened. Nobody had to tell them. They had this internal mechanism by the Spirit of God empowering their wills that I will continue walking no matter what, following Jesus. And if here and a heavenly messenger is sent to tell me what to do next, there's no hesitation. They didn't stop to call their relatives and friends. As we mentioned, when the Lord sent the 70 out, He told them, don't even greet anyone on the way. You continue on your mission to evangelize. There are certain points in which the Lord will remind us, I told you to do this. Nothing should stop you. Continue. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they were trembled, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. True. They were afraid, but they also were mission-minded. That's something that you couldn't take away from them. Because they could have, even with the fear, resorted back to their houses. They could have talked among themselves and had a six-hour conversation on all the things that happened. There's so much. But they were not weak women in that respect. They kept their eyes on the Lord and what he told him to do. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. One demon is enough to do so much damage. If anyone has seen demon possession cases, Again, as we heard recently, there are demons that are very, very intelligent and refined. All of them are intelligent. In the sense that they think and they reason. They follow orders depending upon who has authority over them, who has power over them. But there are demons that are not only intelligent and violent, intelligent but dumb, and they take a hold of one's vocal cords and voice box and 
uh, ability to speak. They can stop ears, make people deaf. Not everybody who's deaf has a demon, obviously. Not everyone is blind as a demon, but there are many cases in which demons are actually sitting there causing it. When the demons are cast out, the particular disease or ailment also goes with the demon. And the person is free. They can see again. They can see for the first time. They can hear. This woman had not one or two demons that caused people to be murderous. Bloodthirsty. Other demons that, like with Judas, at least one of them that was full of desire for money, became a thief. The demons behind these activities very clear from scripture. Because rebellion comes from the ultimate rebel, the first rebel, Satan. The liar, the murderer and the thief, Satan himself. From the beginning, Jesus said, And so people who do those things, the father of lies actually is working through them. And in cases of possession, we're used to hearing and perhaps from movies and our own understanding that when a person is possessed, they will manifest physically in a very conspicuous manner. And nobody can mistake that for normalcy. But there are many, many demons who are not only intelligent, but they're refined. They're able to sit in a person who will deny the virgin birth, who will deny the atonement, deny God. And they will make it their mission to debunk Christianity and all the truth. We can be sure if a person is driven to do that, not talking out of ignorance, not talking because of peer pressure, but blaspheming very methodically and uh, consistently. There's a demon living with them and within them. When a person looks normal and they go about their day-to-day activities but they like to steal what the world and psychologists in their medical terminologies they call it a disorder They may call it a condition where the person just can't help it. It's an urge to 
feel and they can't help it. It's a kleptomania. And God says, there's a demon behind the urge to steal, the consistent desire to take what doesn't belong to him or her. Isn't the devil described as one who steals, kills and destroys? There are people who like to set fires. They may look perfectly normal, high school students or college students, or people who work, they have a nine-to-five job, but they're driven by this demon. They like to start fires. They have a name for these people. They call them arsonists, as we know. They have a label and name for many things, including mental disorders. The point is that a particular demon or demons may manifest in a certain way which we may see as common. But there are others that are very much as dangerous as the ones who manifest physically where everybody can see something seriously wrong. Others where they smile through the person and they give an uncanny ability to write stories this is true a person who has no literary ability whatsoever producing whole books under the influence of a demon they take their car keys in their hands they're able to walk to their car and turn on the ignition drive sensibly observing the traffic laws, smile at the traffic cop, park their car, walk in a normal manner, smiling at everyone in the store, getting their groceries, dress decently, talk decently, filled with the devil. How? absolutely perverted in their thinking but nobody can see it filled with images from watching horror movies or whatever they have watched got into them there's an internal storyline going within the imagination but nobody sees it so who would ever guess that that person has a demon or a real devil inside them unless the person is aware of how these demons can operate. This woman had seven of them. One demon is enough to cause a person to commit murder. She had seven of them. One demon is enough to cause a person to be immoral. She had seven of them. What hope there is if we should ever think of someone that we know, a relative, stranger, we may be inclined to think they, they're really far gone. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. This woman had seven demons sitting inside of her. 
She cooked. She cleaned. She interacted socially. It's not written of her that she was in the tombs with chains cutting herself. She may have manifested certain behaviors that may have attracted attention or maybe not. But certainly she was not like that man who looked completely out of control. And others, women in meetings that we've seen, especially in crusades in the East, begin to swirl their heads and their upper bodies, their torso in a circular fashion, just swirling around and round and round. And oftentimes have their hair unkempt and hanging in front of their faces and pretty soon start to convulse. These are real. But too often people mistake or miss demonic activity because they're ignorant. There are many demons sitting in people in the West and the East. There are people listening to this message today could have even up to the recent past had a demon sitting inside of you until the Lord came and kicked them out. This doesn't obviate the necessity of us to own up to our sins but the influence of the evil spirits must be noted. This woman specifically noted here not just any Mary not just any Mary from the region of Magdala Mary Magdalene but the very one from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. What a transformation. This woman had nothing to do with the devil anymore. They were out and they were out for good. No more coming back. Hallelujah. What hope there is. Perhaps we don't need to even look at Mary Magdalene. We can just look at ourselves. What we used to be. How we used to think. How we used to live. How we were in defiance to God. Even if we held the job and we smiled at people and we talked very nice and were polite. Serving the enemy. Maybe not demon-possessed, but nonetheless, our master was the devil before we came to Jesus. To remember where God took us from and to have that kind of compassion and faith that God can do it for other people too. Never, ever write anyone off as someone unable to be saved unless the Lord shows you this person is actively blaspheming and resisting grace and seeking to damage God's kingdom and will not let up fully knows what he or she is doing and God has said for all these reasons and more they've reached the point of no return but we're not to make that judgment unless God shows us that. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, 
they did not believe. They were under this stupor, as it were. They didn't know what was happening. They were caught up in everything, trying to process it. But also, this was just one of the women. It wasn't like Peter came and told them. Could have been a factor. But they didn't believe the message. Can we find fault with them? Does the scripture find fault with them? Yes. Because we see in another gospel, on the road to Emmaus, the Lord rebuking and upbraiding the people, the two that he walked with, because they didn't believe the scriptures. There's this dullness, there's this involvement in, I have the scriptures, I know it to an extent, and I'm doing okay. Not aware of their own dullness. So the Lord had to say, oh foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. I have to put myself in the place and say, so many of these men who were following Jesus didn't believe. Could I have been among them also and not believe? And what if I heard the Lord tell me, why are you so foolish and slow of heart to believe? All that I told you already. Thank God we weren't there. But we need to make sure we don't go back there from where we are today. That everything Jesus says, everything we read in the scriptures, we need to be open and like a sponge receiving what God says so that we can please God. Not to try to be somebody and be smart and show off. Simply to be in step with the Spirit, to please God. Not miss anything. Certainly not to grieve God with unbelief. A new set of eyes to read the scriptures, a new set of ears to hear the word of God, every time God gives it, to say, Lord, even so, may it be according to your word. After that, he appeared in another form, that's exactly what we're referring to, detailed further in Luke's Gospel. But here it said, after that he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. Somehow he hid himself and disguised himself. He was shrouded from their ability to recognize him. There's a reason he did that. He wanted to unfold for them the depth of their unbelief that it should not be and how do you combat it what's the remedy being in the word and receiving everything and being alert to remember everything hallelujah let us not be forgetful here as the scripture says to receive everything ponder them keep them in your heart and meditate on them don't let them go until you see the fulfillment in that case, there's so much God has given us in the scriptures. That's why we need to put all our heart and soul into it. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. 
Later, he appeared to the eleven. Look at how many times. As they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Many times we remember the Lord saying, Peace. It's me. It's I. But there are instances in which he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Must I read this this morning and any time I read Mark's gospel and look at it and say, it's just too much time spending on this rebuke part. That's an indication that something's wrong with the person who says that, for sure. Because we need to be honest and think, could the Lord be rebuking me through this? Because I'm not believing everything he's saying. Isn't the Lord gentle? Doesn't he understand? Yes, he does. But there are certain times when he has given so much that if we still question or we don't follow him, and we don't go along with what the Spirit is doing, the Lord will be upset, rightly so. If we don't want to be found in that crowd, we need to acknowledge what he's communicating and master this section. Say, Lord, I don't want this in my life. What did he rebuke? Their unbelief and hardness of heart. Woe is me, pity me, I don't know what's going on and why this and that and why Moses brought us out here and let's stone David. And where is God? The impudent sentiments that so many believers today shoot off immediately toward heaven. Imagine the grief of the Lord. It's good to read and pause. Because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Notice something here, very important. We may be inclined to think, well, the angel didn't come and tell me. God didn't speak to me in a dream. There's this fellow over here, or this woman, or this person, or this preacher saying this, or this brother or sister if it's the word of God, I need to be humble to hear. And I need to be wise to check myself to see whether I'm in it, going along with it, or there's a problem with me. Notice he, he was not only upset because they didn't believe all the things that were was already said, that he himself revealed to them. But now the people that came and told them, they're not believing them. Thomas, blessed are those who have seen or who have not seen and yet believe. You've seen me and believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Well, how do you believe if you haven't seen? By hearing. By hearing the word. To be open like little children to the Spirit of God will position us to receive everything heaven has to offer. And we will not grieve the Lord, but we will please Him because we're always believing and not unbelieving. And He said to them, go into all the world. This group of people that He keeps having to say, even after He rose from the dead, why are you so full of unbelief? The Lord is anticipating something. They're not going to stay that way. This time, you see, when He was walking with them before He was crucified, a lot of things would not get into their understanding. 
But now he had to rebuke still because the transformation hasn't happened fully. For sure they would have paid more attention. And they would follow through knowing I'm saved. I believe in Jesus. He's appeared to me. I know he's going to take me to that mansion. To his father's house. But I need the power of the Holy Spirit. And he would tell them, you want the transformation to be complete and consummate? You need to do what I tell you. Go to Jerusalem and wait there. Until you receive power from on high. The real power. And he said to them, and again, so much hope we have. If the woman with seven devils can be so transformed and so in love with the Lord, and the Lord will speak to her personally, appear to her first, and give her the job of being an evangelist to herald his resurrection message. And now, the disciples, again and again, being upbraided for their unbelief, it seems like wherever he catches the disciples, wherever there are disciples, repeatedly he's having to rebuke them for their hardness of heart. What's happened? They're caught up into themselves. We need to open ourselves up and say, Lord, it's not about me. It doesn't matter what I think, it's what you say. And my thinking must conform to what you reveal. That's where life is, where everything opens up. And things change. So he gives the commission. And we'll see in John's Gospel and the rehearsal of that in Acts chapter 1 that he says to them, I'm giving you the great commission, but don't you do anything until you receive that power, that purifying fire from above in the Holy Spirit. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Does one need to get baptized in order to be saved? As we read verse 16, the whole of it, you see 16b, the second half, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Very important statement that the Lord said with regards to salvation and baptism faith if you believe and you're baptized you'll be saved but if you don't believe you'll be condemned you won't be saved shouldn't it read if you believe and you're baptized you'll be saved but if you don't believe and you don't get baptized you'll not be saved the reason it's not written that way is because if a person doesn't believe, there's no use for that person to be baptized. It doesn't even come into the picture. 
because baptism is not for infants or anyone who doesn't know what they're doing. It's for those who have repented of their sins and decided to follow Jesus. Also, in the first part of the statement we see how important baptism is in the life of a believer to the point that if a person professes to follow Jesus Christ and refuses to get baptized they're denying the Lord Jesus Christ because baptism is a public acknowledgement among other things of identification with the Lord Jesus. If this public acknowledgement and active confession in the water by immersion is left out, then as the Lord Jesus warned, he who does not confess me before men, I will not confess him before my Father. Which means, which means they will not enter into heaven. They won't have God's approval to enter. And somebody says, what about the thief on the cross? He didn't get baptized. And the Lord said, you'll be with me in paradise today. It's an exception. But everywhere you see the Lord commanding them. I want you to go into all the world. You see the Great Commission in Matthew. As well as here. This is what the Lord instituted. What would you think about a person who said, I believe in the Lord Jesus. He died on the cross for me and he paid for my sins with his holy blood and he rose from the grave on the third day. Seated at the right hand of the Father. He's coming back for me. But I don't want to partake of the Lord's table. Why? Well, because I, I've watched some things on the screen that I shouldn't have. And I, I don't want to come and drink the cup unworthily and bring damnation to myself. There's a warning there in Corinthians, remember? I don't want to presume upon God's grace and get struck down. I dare not touch the bread representing the body of the Lord Jesus while I'm in sin. Well, that's understandable and acceptable in the sense that that person understands he cannot profane the Lord's body or his blood like that be in sin and come and partake with your unholy hands unholy imagination unholy eyes however for that person to do that week after week do you think their salvation will stand before God? Absolutely not. Because, again, they're denying the very body and blood of Jesus. They're saying, I'm not ready. When will we be ready? Hopefully it won't be too late. The two ordinances that the Lord gave, the Lord's table, or the Lord's supper, or the communion, And baptism, 
must be practiced by Christians. These are not works that lead to salvation, but they're works that are evidenced or evidence of, evidences of the real salvation. Because if I really believe, I will do what God told me to do. And he said, I'm supposed to do this. Remember the Lord's death and show it forth till he comes by partaking in the Holy Communion. As often as you do this, baptism, if you believe, you will be baptized. If you claim to believe and you don't get baptized, your belief is not real belief because it has no works to go along with it. Faith without works is dead. Someone may argue, well, this person obviously is not the thief on the cross, but they're 98 years old and they cannot get into any water. Again, an exception. Let the Lord handle that. But for the rest, it's very clear. Why would anyone, no matter how they argue, saying it's a works-based salvation or legalism, they all become foolishness in the sight of God because it's clearly commanded. And the scriptural sequence of reasoning is this, as explained Whoever claims to be saved and does not obey the Lord, especially with reference to intimately partaking in his body and blood and publicly confessing that Jesus is the Lord, they're effectively denying the Lord. Therefore, their faith is dead. But a real faith, a person justified by the blood of Jesus, freely by grace, will show that the regeneration has happened truly and there's a quickening of the conscience to see I now live for Jesus Christ he's my Lord and Savior what did he tell me to do? partake in the Lord's table get baptized keep partaking in the Lord's table but the baptism one time if it's meant with all the heart in genuine repentance that stays forever And the Lord says, these signs will follow those who believe. These signs will follow those who believe. What signs? These signs are miracles, wonders. They're out of the ordinary, supernatural things. Jesus said elsewhere, said I not unto you, said I not unto you, if you believe you see the glory of God, and he that believes on me, the works that I do, he shall do also, and greater works than these shall he do. These signs shall follow who? The evangelist, the pastor, the teacher, the prophet, the apostle, the bishop, the cardinal, 
the presbyter. The qualification here for miracles to follow anyone who follows the Lord is to believe. It's to believe. If my Lord said this, I'm going to expect it. Because if I don't expect it to happen, I'm showing clearly I don't really believe. But if I have my life right before God and the Lord told me here, these signs shall follow them that believe. Right there I know, whatever signs he's going to say, wonders and miracles, it's got to happen in my life. in the context of the ministry God gives not everybody's going to automatically take up serpents because not everyone has that occasion to have serpents when they minister to try to hinder Paul did and many people have since then not everyone however that miraculous power will be present, God said, that when you are following me, you're trusting me, even a snake can stop you. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. There are many means to healing. We mentioned the Lord's table before in another meeting. Laying on of hands from those who really believe through one who has the gift of healing or gifts of healing or healings. Miraculous deliverance and so forth. But here the criteria is Simply a person who believes. And so this has happened in many cases. When we look at the totality of Scripture, if healing doesn't happen when we lay hands on someone and we believe, it may have to do with God dealing with that person because they don't believe. It's possible. It happens. It may be that they are being dealt with by God because they haven't repented of some sin that God has been talking to them about. It may be that God's timing has not arrived for that healing, but it's getting there. In the case of one who is well advanced in years, lived a full life for the glory of God. It may be that it's their time. But other than those kind of scenarios, they said these signs shall follow them to believe. We have to look at the totality of Scripture. But with all the other scriptures, we know one thing. God expects us to believe. And God says, I will do wonders. They shall cast out devils. 
this kind of belief obviously is talking about a person who really obeys the Lord's commandments because the Bible doesn't know any other kind of belief that is acceptable with God and the devil will certainly not leave if an unholy person says in Jesus name I cast you out no matter how many scriptures that person can quote but if somebody's walking with God they're trembling before God they have the fear of God and the love of God and their desire is to please God and has compassion upon people who are infirm. And they're led by the Spirit to go to a certain individual. Notice the factors involved. At that point, they have to expect healing will come through. Devils will be cast out. If they believe, they'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit and they'll speak in new tongues. And where God's sovereign will places them and the necessity arises God can give them the gift of tongues and the interpretation of tongues as well and if they're poisoned and I've mentioned this in a recent meeting our missionaries are poisoned they were poisoned repeatedly never did anything to them and they Natives were astonished, not unlike when Paul shook off that serpent when they expected him to die. This is our heritage. This is what God has given us. We have to be like little children and simply believe what God has spoken. One more time we have to mention that there are people who are supposed to be scholars and many modern versions either omit this section this section altogether or they put it in parentheses or brackets or they have a footnote or an explanatory comment stating that the best manuscripts don't have this section or the earliest manuscripts don't have this section there's no warrant to even qualify such statements because there's no conclusive proof that the earliest are considered the best because they can be the earliest errors because a manuscript is earlier than another one doesn't mean that it is the best or most accurate it could be an error just older and also because there are more manuscripts that say this section shouldn't be there doesn't mean that's correct either we must remember that Bibles that have left this section intact with many of the sections that modern versions question sow seeds of doubt it's a systematic work of the devil to try to undermine the truth of scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit We need to remember the Bibles that have had these sections have been used in revival for centuries. A good few centuries. Speaking of the English version. And of course, the original the Greek version and the manuscripts that contain them 
over the centuries since they were written. You look at the early church. You look at the successors to the apostles and their successors, century after century. Recordings, things they've written down that believers are experiencing these things. Casting out devils in Jesus' name. Speaking with new tongues. This instance and that instance, a snake came, a cobra came, unharmed. They were given poison to drink, nothing happened. Records are there in the early church history and in recent times I mentioned missionaries in the Congo and other places. We need to simply look at the scripture. Say, Lord, I believe. Furthermore, how these verses parallel other verses in the Bible talking about treading upon serpents and scorpions. God has given us power over all the power of the enemy. For all these reasons, we need to say, Lord, set me ablaze for you, filled with the Holy Spirit, to do what you did for your glory. Verse 19. The Lord records here will also happen to us. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. The next verse. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. This is our heritage. We must never let the devil work through people. Scholars and people debate and they spend a lifetime deceived by Satan and sowing seeds of doubt everywhere. So that a person will begin to question, well, if this is not right, maybe John's Gospel, when it talks about the adulterous woman. Maybe other sections in Daniel and in Revelation, maybe the whole thing is suspect. Maybe I need to go and research, go to Oxford University, and I need to go to Harvard University, Yale, Divinity School, and dig up a lot of things from the earth and sit there, spend a lifetime trying to figure out, what do I believe anyway? And so Satan will come. And then the Lord will have to do what he did to the disciples, except on a more intense level. Rebuke us for the foolishness and hardness of heart instead of simply believing to be led astray by Satan's fools who have been directed by him to try to undo the very word of God the words of God heaven and earth will pass away the Lord said my words will never pass away Christianity is a miraculous religion and if religion, by religion we mean a pathway to God and worship of God, then we can call Christianity religion. But if we compare with other religions of the world, they're all man's attempt to try to find some kind of balancing act to be acceptable of God. As you know, only the Bible, only Christianity states, mankind is in a big mess 
And doesn't history prove that? Even the unbeliever knows that. It's getting worse and worse. That's why Jesus came down to save us from our mess by giving his precious blood to wash us from our sins, which is the cause of the mess. One by one, he redeems us out of the mess. Gives us a brand new life so that we can go around doing what he did, helping people out of the mess. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we pray? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Blessed be your name, Lord. We thank you, Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. Oh, Jesus, help us to say like Isaiah. Send me, Lord, but first cleanse my lips. I dwell in the midst of unclean people. Wicked generation. Lord, I want no part of it. I believe you. Jesus, I believe you. Every word that you've spoken is healing to my soul, to my mind and my body. God, use my life to be like a little child with regards to malice and evil. Ignorant of it, having nothing to do with it. As if I don't know anything about it. To be far from evil and deceitfulness. Oh Lord, but to be like a child embracing your truth. Believing every word you spoke. Lord, I pray, may this group of people hearing the message this morning, all of us, be clothed with the power from on high, faith that, Lord, you can use our lives to destroy the works of darkness and set captives free while we blaze a holy trail for people to follow. Following you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Oh, Jesus, I pray. Help us to get rid of any hardness of heart and unbelief. That we may be commended by you as blessed people who believe and obey. Lord, I thank you for the miracles that you've done, miracles you're doing, and many, many more miracles you have waiting for your children. Because, Lord, you are God of power and love faithfulness and holiness and truth. We praise you, Lord. Go with your people today. Help them. Set them free, Lord, of trouble and turmoil and any fear and any doubt, Lord, of handling things. Oh, Jesus, Satan has no authority in our lives. Hallelujah. Whatever roadblock the devil puts up, Whatever thorns along the way and snares he makes, he lays. May the spirit of fire from you, Lord, burn it all up. May, Lord, the hammer of the Lord break into pieces every barrier the devil puts up. So we may please you, Lord, and continue to walk with you, doing your will, until we see you in glory. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Glory be to the Lord. We've been graced by God to finish Mark's Gospel, this devotional type of study. The Lord help us to remember all the things He's taught us, and even as you read the Scriptures yourself, to recall the different things He's shown us 
to be on fire for God, believing every word. Anybody who would like to pray, you can go ahead and pray.